Good morning. Welcome, Bethel Baptist family, and any of you who are visiting with us this morning. We're really glad that you're here. All right, so scripture reading for this morning is Acts 17. Pastor Tyler is going to be bringing us the third value of our Values Refresh series here. Um, And so this is a great passage on mission. Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. So if you don't have a Bible or if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 926. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. You can follow along as I read. Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. As I did, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Morning, Bethel. So as Chris said, uh, we are continuing our 
values series this morning. So if you're a, a guest here today or if you haven't been here in a while, this is a three-part series on our core values as a church family, so gospel, community, and mission. Two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Chris kicked us off by focusing on the gospel. He looked at Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. So Jesus is our great high priest, uh, fully God and fully man. He was tempted as we are, yet Jesus never sinned. And for us and our salvation, he laid down his life on the cross. He bore God's wrath for our sin, and God raised him from the dead. And now, because of what Jesus accomplished, every single person who turns from their sin and trusts Jesus to save them is counted as righteous by God and can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's the gospel. That's really, really good news. So last week, Chris looked at the second value, community. He did that from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. So because of what Jesus has accomplished, because of what Christ has done for us, because he paid for our sin on the cross and gave us his perfect righteousness, we can and should draw near to him in faith and help one another stay faithful. So the gospel sends us in toward community. But the gospel also sends us out on mission, and that's our third value, out on mission toward those who don't know Jesus. So God is a missional God, and he sent Jesus on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost, and Jesus succeeded, thankfully, in that. And so now Jesus sends his people, us, those who are following him, out as his ambassadors to proclaim the gospel to the world, to tell all people about Christ, about what he has done, about the forgiveness and salvation that he offers to everyone who would come to him and trust him. So that was the aim of a man named David Brainerd. You may have heard of him. He lived in the 18th century, and he was a missionary to Native Americans uh, around the area of New Jersey. So to get a glimpse into what motivated David Brainerd's missionary work, just listen to this journal entry. He wrote this on October 2nd, 1747. It was seven days before he died. He says, My soul was this day at turns sweetly set on God. I longed to be with him that I might behold his glory. Oh, that his kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify him for what he is in himself, and that the blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So what drove David Brainerd? What did he long to see take place? He wanted to see God's kingdom come in the world so that everyone might love and glorify God for what he is in himself. It might sound really familiar to a song we sung this morning, Let Your Kingdom Come. David Brainerd was passionate for God. John Piper points this out, and he says, quote, The absence of Brainerd's passion for God is the great cause of missionary weakness in the churches. This was Andrew Murray's judgment a hundred years ago. As we seek to find out why, with such millions of Christians, the real army of God that is fighting the host of darkness is so small 
The only answer is lack of heart. The enthusiasm of the kingdom is missing, and that is because there is so little enthusiasm for the king. That one hurts. I think that he's right on. So in our passage this morning, as we consider missions, we're looking at Acts 17, 16 to 34. And in this text, the Apostle Paul displays what I think Piper and Andrew Murray are pointing at um, uh, when they talk about passion for God and passion for God leading to missions. So that is, in Acts 17, Paul's love for God, Paul's desire to see God receive the worship he's due motivates and drives his mission toward the Athenian people. So there's a progression in this passage. Paul sees the problem of idolatry in Athens. It provokes his spirit within him, and so he proclaims the gospel to the people throughout the city. The problem, that'll be our first point, idolatry, leads to an internal reaction in Paul That'll be our second point, godly jealousy, which leads to an external reaction. That'll be our third point, evangelism. I think this says a lot about how we should think about our city, how we should think about mission and evangelism today. And so we'll look at each of those points in turn, starting with point one, the problem, idolatry. So look with me at Acts 17 verse 16. Again, if you're using your pew Bible, you can find that on page 926. So Luke tells us, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. At this point, it's approximately 80-50, and the apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He just left Berea, and now Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us this information. He's waiting for them, that Silas and Timothy, at Athens. And while he's there, his spirit is provoked within him as he sees that the city was full of idols. So at this time, Athens was part of the Roman Empire, and it was located in the province of Achaia. If you were with us for our series on 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you might remember that Corinth was in Achaia too. So Paul would have known about Athens. It had a reputation for its philosophical, its intellectual, its cultural heritage. But what strikes Paul about the city is not its wisdom or its culture or its beauty, but that it's full of idols. So what exactly does uh, that mean? What exactly did Athens look like? Well, one commentator describes it like this. The epithet, full of idols, certainly seems to have been singularly appropriate. Other writers, writing of Athens in a different spirit to Paul, could not help noticing this striking peculiarity in the city. Petronius remarks satirically how at Athens one could find a god easier than a man. Another writes how it was almost impossible for one to make his way through these idols. Pausanias states how Athens had more images than all the rest of Greece put together. Xenophon's expression is the strongest, when he calls Athens one great altar, one great offering to the gods. And another commentator, John Stott, he adds this. This might be helpful to picture this in our minds. He says, there were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. 
In the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron, of Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, and Asclepius. The whole Greek pantheon was there, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble, and they had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. So what is wrong with that picture? What's the problem? Well, Paul's going to answer that clearly later in the passage. And so let's work our way there. Let's start in verse 17, and uh, hopefully we'll see it. So Luke says there that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Devout persons, that's a reference to Gentiles or non-Jewish people who worshiped God but who hadn't fully converted to Judaism. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with them and, Luke says, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Epicureans were pursuers of pleasure. They believed that the gods didn't care about the actions of humanity. Stoics, however, they were pantheists. God is in everything. And they emphasized duty, obedience, the endurance of pain. So if we were to, to try to think about that in today's world, the Epicureans would be kind of like a stereotypical party-goer who satisfies every whim and desire, takes advantage of the here and now, while the Stoics would be more like an ascetic monk who endures pain uh, and deprives themselves of things for a greater good. And so as Paul speaks to these people, they have two different reactions. In verse 18, Luke says that some of them say, what does this babbler wish to say? It's not entirely obvious at first, but that's not a real nice question. The, the word babbler, it comes from the practice of birds picking up seeds, and it's used here to refer to somebody who, like a scavenger bird, picks up pieces of information from various sources and passes them off as their own. But in reality, they're ignorant, and they're not really contributing anything to the conversation. So they're taking a shot at Paul here with a question like that. Other people say of Paul, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they realize that there's something different about what Paul's proclaiming. And so verse 19 says, they take him and bring him to the Areopagus saying, now we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Luke adds a comment to that in verse 21. This, this may be a, a cheeky sort of comment. He says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So it could be that Luke's trying to say, Paul's not the true babbler. The Athenians are. So they bring Paul to the Areopagus, which means the hill of Ares, Ares is the Greek name for the Roman god Mars, so you may have heard Areopagus referred to as Mars Hill. It was a place, but it also referred to the council that met there that would weigh issues of morality and religion. And so it's likely before that council that Paul lovingly, clearly, 
and boldly addresses the idolatry that he's seen. And as he does so, I think at least three points are clear. So we'll bring these out as we look through his speech. One, God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists and the Lord of heaven and earth. So look with me at verses 22 to 25. Paul, or Luke says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this council, more likely than not, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So as creator, Lord, and sustainer of all that exists, God, the God of the universe, cannot be confined to a temple. The God of the universe cannot be served as though he were in need of something. He's not in need of anything. He's the one who gives us everything. So the Athenians, with their temples for the gods and with their service to the gods, they have missed this. They're not worshiping the God, the true God of the universe. So two, God is the knowable creator and the sovereign ruler of all nations. Look at verses 26 to 29. Paul continues, And he made from one man, it's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And why did he do this? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So God created all nations, and he sovereignly determined their time periods and their boundaries. And he did this so that they, so that the nations would seek him and perhaps find him. God wants to be known, and he isn't far away. He is our creator, and in him we move and have our being. But the Athenians in their idolatry have missed him. Just think about it. Even their own poets acknowledge that we are God's offspring. Yet if that's true, and it is, then God is not like a man-made image of gold, silver, or stone precisely because we are not like a man-made image of stone. So in saying, or in worshiping these man-made images, Paul is, Paul is telling the Athenians that they have missed God He's saying, if you, if even your own poets acknowledge that God is your creator, that we are made in his image, then you betray your ignorance by worshiping an idol made, made, in, uh, made of metal, made of gold, made of silver. So they've gone astray. They're not worshiping the true God. And then three, God will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. Verses 30 and 31, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he is fixed today on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God did not judge idolaters as he could have, but the day is coming when he will, when he will judge all peoples by Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, and at whose name, Paul says in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Athenians needed to hear that. The Athenians need to turn away from their sin. They need to turn in faith to Jesus. Instead of worshiping idols, they need to bow the knee to King Jesus, to God the Son. So if we were to sum up the problem with the Athenians' idolatry, maybe we could put it like this. They aren't worshiping God. They haven't submitted themselves to Jesus. Instead, they're worshiping false gods, idols, and therefore they are robbing the one true God of the worship he's due. To use the language of Paul in Romans 1, they are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They're exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And Paul wants them to know that unless they repent, unless they turn from their idols and turn in faith to Jesus, they're going to be judged and punished. Idolatry is deadly. It was deadly back when Paul addressed the Areopagus in Athens, and it's deadly now in 2018 in Wilmington, Delaware. It can be so easy sometimes to look back at idol worship in the Bible and think more highly of ourselves than we ought. At least I'm not worshiping a golden calf. I mean, come on. But idolatry is more than bowing down before a man-made image. At the root, idolatry is a sin of the heart in which we treat something or someone as more valuable than God. John Stotty puts it like this. All idolatry, whether ancient or modern, primitive or sophisticated, is inexcusable, whether the images are metal or mental, material objects of worship or unworthy concepts in the mind. For idolatry is the attempt either to localize God, confining Him within limits which we impose, whereas He is the creator of the universe, or to domesticate God, making Him dependent on us, taming and taping Him, whereas He is the sustainer of human life, or to alienate God, blaming Him for His distance and silence, whereas he is the ruler of all nations and not far from any of us, or to dethrone God, demoting him to some image of our own contrivance or craft, whereas he is our father from whom we derive our being. In brief, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. More than that, it actually reverses the respective positions of God and us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. There is no logic in idolatry. It is a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. And here's the thing. We are all idol worshipers. It's just that now, in 2018, we bow before things like individualism. I'm my own person. You can't tell me what to do. Comfort approval, 
sex, money, control, success, power. We could go on and on. As John Calvin famously said, our hearts are like idol factories. We are so prone, even as Christians, to take the good gifts God gives us and turn them into ultimate things, to worship the giver or the gift rather than the giver of the gifts. And so for those of us who know Christ, we need to be quick to repent of the idols in our lives and turn in faith to Jesus over and over and over again. And the good news of the gospel is that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The good news is that the Holy Spirit is working in us. He's conforming us day by day into the image of Jesus. And there's a day coming when the idolatry in our hearts will be there no longer. We will be made perfect to be like Christ and we'll see him as he is. Now, for those of us who aren't following Jesus, God commands repentance He demands that everyone worship the Son, Jesus Christ. Those who persist in their rebellion and die in that state will be be forced to bow the knee to Jesus, will be justly punished forever in hell. And so if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, let me plead with you. You need to hear this. But here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for idolaters, and he accepts everyone who turns to him in faith. So let today be the day of salvation. If you're not trusting Jesus, trust him today. Turn from your sin and your rebellion. Ask Jesus to save you, and he will. He will make you new on the spot. And Bethel, we need to hear this message too, especially as we think about mission as we think about our unsaved friends, family members, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, idolatry is deadly and the situation is dire, but there is hope in Jesus. So let's intentionally <clears throat> think about the idols people in our city and spheres of influence are prone to worship. Let's lovingly help them see it and let's point them to Jesus who alone can forgive them, save them, and give them peace and cleansing. So Paul knows that the idolatry in Athens is a problem, but there's more to that story. The sight of it, it provokes something within him, and that's what we'll look at in our second point, the internal response, godly jealousy. So look back at verse 16. Luke says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So provoked, what exactly does that mean? The word only occurs one other time in the New Testament. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul's talking about love there, and he says that love is not easily provoked. The ESV translate that, translates that as not irritable. The NIV, uh, it, it translates that as not easily angered. Now, that's helpful, but the Old Testament, specifically the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, really clues us in, I think, to what Paul's feeling here. And there, the word for provoked is used in the context of God's anger at idolatry. So in Deuteronomy 9, 7 to 8, Moses tells the Israelites, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, 
you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, which is where the Israelites worshiped the golden calf, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So God's people provoked him to wrath when they worshiped idols. Their idolatry angered him. And why? He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the one true God. He's the only one worthy of worship. God is a jealous God, and he has every right to be. It's not a character flaw. Again, John Stott is helpful here. He says, Now jealousy is the resentment of rivals, and whether it is good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business to be there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains, or sport is sinful because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in those areas. If, on the other hand, a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. It's the same with God who says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God's worthy of all worship. God is a jealous God. And so in Acts 17, when Luke says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw the idols in Athens, he's telling us that Paul felt a godly jealousy over what he saw. Paul felt a holy anger, a righteous indignation. Like David Brainerd, Paul was passionate for God. He wanted to see God get the glory he's, he's due, to see Jesus worshiped as he should be. And so when he sees the idols in Athens, he's angered by it. Idols were being worshipped instead of the one true God. People were bowing before man-made images instead of King Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. That bothers Paul. It's really important, I think, for us to notice this because it's Paul's internal response of godly jealousy that leads to his external response of evangelism. So Luke says in verses 16 to 17, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul's desire for God to receive worship leads him to tell idol worshipers about Jesus and the resurrection. And so this morning as we consider mission, I think some big questions we should be asking ourselves include, am I passionate for God? Do I desire to see people worship Jesus? Am I bothered when it's obvious they aren't? This is important because if the desire isn't there, it's going to be all too easy for us to shrink back and fail to share the gospel because of, what because of fear over what people will think, how they'll respond, or what we should say. But if that passion for God is there, if that passion for God's name is there, for Christ is there, if we long to see Jesus receive the praise he's due, if that desire becomes bigger to us than the obstacles that are in the way of evangelism, then we might just find ourselves faithfully proclaiming the gospel throughout our city. So how do we get there, especially if you don't feel like it, if we don't feel that desire right now? I don't think there are any shortcuts. We need to do the things that I think we know to do. I'll give you four quickly. One, Pray. Remember the truth of Hebrews 4. Boldly go to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. Ask God to give you a passion for his name. 
Ask him to stir up in you a godly jealousy over the unbelief of others. Ask him to help you boldly share the gospel with people who need Jesus. Two, we have to be reading our Bibles. The Bible is God's word to us. So if we want to be passionate for God, we need to get to know God more intimately through the means that he's given us. Third, we have to get in community. Like we saw last week, we need to stir one another up uh, to love and good deeds. We need to make sure we stay faithful. I need you to help me, and you need me to help you. And that includes accountability and evangelism. And four, we need to share the gospel even when we don't feel like it. So Jesus commands us to tell other people about him. And so we, if we refuse, we're being disobedient. So if the passion for God's name is not there like we want it to be, let's step out in faith, obey Jesus, share the gospel anyway, and ask God to change our hearts in the meantime. So Paul sees that idolatry in Athens. It arouses in him the internal response of godly jealousy, and that in turn leads him to, this is our third point, evangelism. So look with me again at verses 16 to 18. So Paul's spirit's provoked as he sees the idols in Athens, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Like God is angered over idolatry, Paul is angered when he sees the idols in Athens, and so he does something about it. He tells the people about Jesus. Does that reaction seem surprising at all? If Paul is angered, we might expect him to come into Athens swinging a swift hammer of wrath and justice. We might expect to see him trying to shame the Athenians. We might, have seen, we might expect to see him just move on to the next city and leave them in their idolatry. But that's not what Paul does because that's not what God does. God knows that we sin and rebel against him and go after other gods. God knows he's the only one worthy of worship. Yet in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, what did God do? He lovingly moved toward us in Jesus. He sent Jesus to seek and to save lost idolaters like me and like you. And so when Paul, when, when his godly jealousy leads him to share the gospel with the Athenians, he's actually modeling the character of God. He's modeling Christ. Remember, the gospel sends us out toward mission. I think that's what we're seeing in Acts 17. The gospel sends Paul out toward mission to the, toward those who don't know Jesus. Notice a few really quick things here. First, Paul shares the gospel in different places, contextualizing the message for each audience. So Luke says Paul shared the gospel in the synagogues, uh, or in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Acts 17, 1 to 3 might give us a clue to what he says. There Luke says that Paul explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So for those folks who are waiting for the Messiah, Paul carefully shows that Jesus is the promised one to come. But Paul also reasons with the Athenians in the marketplace, with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, 
and with the Areopagus. And as he does that, he even cites their own poets in the process. That was verse uh, 28 of Acts 17. So Paul seems to take pains to share the gospel with people in a way that they're going to understand, in a way that connects with them. I think there's something we can learn from that. I think we need to learn from that. We need to get to know people in a way that enables us to share Christ faithfully with them so they can understand. We need to do that gently. We need to do that faithfully. And we need to seek to share the gospel intelligibly. So that means Christian jargon, things that we might understand in our community, like throwing out words like justification or sanctification or blood of Jesus. We need to take the time to explain what we're talking about rather than uh, use phrases that we might be familiar with but our neighbors might not. And there are lots of other ways to apply that as well. But the point is, we can contextualize for our audience, and it's a loving thing to do so. We need to seek it out. But second, Paul shares the gospel without fear. So Paul's not in a friendly environment here. In fact, the way the text reads, it's possible that he's actually taken, like taken to the Areopagus. Yet he doesn't shrink back from telling the truth. Why? Because he loves God. He wants God to receive worship, not idols. And he wants the people of Athens to turn in faith to Jesus before it's too late. A passion for God can overcome fear. So if fear is an obstacle, pray to the Lord again. Ask him to change your heart and give you that passion. And then lastly, Paul shares the gospel clearly and lovingly. So Luke records for us his message to the Areopagus. Now, while it is undoubtedly confrontational, because the gospel is confrontational, it confronts us in our sin, Paul's word to them is clear and loving. He explains to them where they've sinned, where they've gone wrong, and the solution, the remedy to their sin, faith in Jesus. He calls them to repentance. And watch the reaction, verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, he's a member of that council, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So only God can save, but God commands us to faithfully share the gospel. And as we do that, we need to trust that God can save. God saved Dionysius. He saved Damaris. He saved others with them. God might just save our neighbors. God might just save your family members who don't know Jesus, the people you work with, people you go to school with. But he commands us to faithfully tell them the good news of the gospel. So let's cultivate a passion for God, a jealousy for his name, Let's call people who don't know Jesus to come to him and find new life, and let's do so in confidence, knowing that a day is coming when people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation will proclaim the refrain of Revelation 5.12. Worshiping Jesus, we will say, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are worthy of all worship and praise. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us in our sin 
and idolatry, but sending Jesus to seek and to save the lost, for dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for Christ's work. Thank you for giving us faith. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, please help us to be gripped by the gospel. Lord, give us a jealousy for your name. Give us a love and desire for you that overcomes any obstacle in our way of evangelism. And so help us, Lord, to faithfully share the gospel with the people in our spheres of influence who don't know you. Please work through us, Lord, to save many in our city. We pray that you would do this for your glory, for their good, and for Christ's sake. Amen.